Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live meets people online. Ooh. Well, and probably elsewhere as well. Uh, you may remember him from the Millennium Whole Earth Catalog. We talked about the way tools change our world. He has his own university name for him, the Howard Rheingold University. Wow. Yes, he, con- he conducts classes and collects tuition over the internet. Mm. And he writes on fascinating internet subjects. And he has a new book out called NetSmart. Will you please welcome Howard Rheingold to West Coast Live. How do you do? Aloha. Aloha. You know, I was very clever. I, I had a bit of your, your book up here uh, on this little device, and I discovered my daughter had her game up, and I don't know how to get back to the book. <laughs> there are advantages to the paper edition. Yeah. yeah. So uh, were you the one who came up with the phrase, why not just call it computer ooga booga? You know, I, may, I think I may have said that, but didn't, was I quoting Ted Nelson, or maybe I was... Well, maybe you were quoting Ted Nelson. Or talking about him, yeah. yeah. The, the computer business sort of frames it in a, in a weird way, because we don't do a lot of computing. We do communicating and creating, and many things that have little to do with calculations. You had one of a, the early top ten websites in 1996, and it later had an early dot-com collapse. Uh, What did you learn about the internet from doing that? I learned a lot about capitalism from doing (laughs) that. I learned that you can actually go to somebody with a piece of paper and a dream and they will give you millions of dollars. And then they want tens of millions of dollars back or they will shut you down. It was was really, I think intellectuals have a kind of unearned contempt for commerce. And until you have met a payroll, or better yet, failed to meet a payroll, you don't really appreciate what people go through in creating a business. That was Electric Minds, and the archives are still online. It was what they now call social media, and what they now call user-generated content, 10 years too early. (laughs) What would it look like today? Well, I mean, your side. I mean, if you were to start such a thing with that idea. Well, it turns out that, that people aren't really paying for culture that way. Poor Salon, which started at the same time, has been struggling along for a long time. But the idea was to have very good articles, the kind that an editor in a magazine selects, about science and technology and issues. And then people would have intelligent conversations about those articles. And then we would take those intelligent conversations and compensate people and edit them and turn them into more content. That was the idea that, that we would have a kind of community composition of intelligent conversation about technology, which, by the way, we still need. What are we missing in our conversation about it? Well, you know, I think a lot of it is framed by these extreme headlines and the, and the necessities of writing a, a short headline. So it's either black or white. It's either this stuff, if, you're, if you don't get aboard, you're going to be left behind, or this, you know, the alienation of the Western world is, is attributable entirely to the internet. And there's a lot of shades of gray in between. 
a lot of colors in between as well. Right, 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 of course. Uh, so there is bondage on the internet as well. <laughs> when you, uh, how do you teach on the internet? How do you use it as a tool? You have very rigorous teaching standards. Uh, you want people to enroll and participate in, in video conferencing? Well, I also teach face-to-face -face at, at, at Berkeley and, and Stanford, and the what they call affordances for teaching online. I just wouldn't have believed that this would have been possible back in Electric Minds days. So I can have a, a live meeting with up to 50 people and audio and very good video, and I can push slides, and they can have text chat, and we can make mind maps together, and we can record the whole thing, and then we can have asynchronous forums or, or BBSs or what they call threaded conversations in text and we can include graphics and we can embed videos over the week and then people can have blogs and we can put up mind maps and we've got wikis. So all these tools that are for the most part freely available if you know how to kind of mix them and match them enable people in different parts of the world. I have these live sessions in which there are people in Venezuela and people in, in China, and we get, we get to it right away. And, uh, and it's, you can have a meeting of the minds. So when you do office hours, though, you do it on Twitter, which is like only 140 characters. You know, Twitter is, a, is really a great discipline for writers. You know, that, <laughs> the old saying that, you know, I, I didn't have time to write something shorter. It's, it's, it, it does force you to, to figure out what is necessary in what I'm saying and what's not necessary in what I'm saying. And if I have to do 16 tweets, then, then maybe it's not meant for this medium. You realize you're speaking a language that Nathaniel Hawthorne would have no clue about. Well, you know, uh, writers and technology go back a long ways. We owe a lot to the, the printing press and... The invention of writing was not part of, of my book, but I'm, I'm very interested in the way that it was originally for business transactions. And then people figured out, well, we can encode all kinds of things. We can, we can transport knowledge with this. So I'm very interested in the ways people appropriate the tools that are created for one purpose for another purpose, for human purposes. Well, speaking of your book, uh, it's called NetSmart. What were, uh, did you have other working titles for it? Well, uh, one of the chapters is, is on crap detection, and I thought of calling it Crap Detection 101, which, which was a, a blog post I wrote that seems to get a lot of attention. It gets to the point, and I think people understand the need for it online. In, in what sense? Well, you know, we live in a magical world. I don't, I don't think that people really appreciate on a daily basis, it's become so much part of our lives, how magic search is. If you can put the right spell together, the right combination of, of words into a query, you can get the answer to any question within about a second and a half. But it's then up to you to determine whether that's good information, bad information, misinformation, disinformation. Or just a cranky opinion. Or a hoax. You know, there's the online pregnancy tester. Uh, there's the... Wait, how does that work? <laughs> Sit, never mind. Sit still while we scan you. <laughs> and it, I'm afraid there may be people who are not aware that it's a hoax. I mean, some people get pregnant because they're not entirely clear on the concept of where babies come from. And they, they might. And then you can find out the gender of your baby. You can find out the father. Turned out that the father of my baby was Fabio, the, the Italian star. 
And if you don't like the father, you can get another. But uh, by, by that time, you know that it's a joke. But you know, there are sites like, uh, if you look up Martin Luther King uh, Jr., uh, on the top page of the search results on every search engine is a site called martinlutherking.org, which looks like it's about the civil rights leader. But the more you look into it, the, the, the worse Martin Luther King Jr. looks. And you have to do a little digging to find out that it's actually a white supremacist group. So that's called a cloaked website. And there are astroturf sites that tell you that certain chemicals are really good for you and um, don't reveal that the people who manufacture those chemicals are the ones who are behind the site. So it's really the, the, a switch in the what, couple of thousand years that we've trusted the texts to have been edited and fact-checked. The, the book really started, I started thinking about it maybe 15 years ago when my daughter and search engines came of age at the same time, and I realized, wait a minute, I better tell her that unlike a book from the library, you have to do the checking to make sure that what you're getting is for real. And now, of course, if, if you're looking for medical symptoms, and who doesn't, um, it, it, could, it could be dangerous. It could endanger your life if you don't know how to do it. When you, uh, when you, when you do a search, uh, how, do you, uh, how do you protect yourself? Uh, how do you verify it? How would you find out that a site say, as we enter the political season, might be giving a bit of disinformation, might be pursuing some arcane political theory and putting it out as you know, mainstream information? You know, probably the easiest thing to do is to look for the name of the author of the site. And if you can't find an author, I would turn down my credibility meter a little bit. You can, you can use a utility called Whois to find out who has registered that site. And then when you get a name, you search on that name and you find out what else they have done and what other people have to say about them. So part of it is thinking like a detective and part of it is counting on other people to have done a little digging as well. Does that get back to the value of a mediated, edited site such as The Guardian in the UK or The, the New York Times or you know, a, a newspaper or magazine, some, uh, The Atlantic, that would have a, an editorial staff that would not only have a distinctive opinion and point of view, but also have a principle of reliability? Well, I think that there's the difference between reporting and, and journalism. And I think it's a great thing that we've got, uh, what is it, four or five billion people walking around with phones in their pocket. Hundreds of millions of them are, are cameras. So we've got reporters everywhere when something happens and you see the pictures instantly. Taking those reports and checking them out, verifying them, finding out whether there are different points of view on it, finding people who speak for those points of view, putting it all together into a, a narrative that's fairly succinct, that's what journalists do, whether it's on the internet or whether it's on, on uh, ink and, and paper. And I don't think that we're ever going to, to not need them. I do think that there are an awful lot of choices now besides the New York Times and the Washington. Well, of course. But I'm, you know, I'm using the old uh, tree model, you know. Uh, but but actually, the model of uh, an editorial staff and discussion, and even though there would be inaccuracies or omissions in these in these papers, there was a sense of moving forward towards some idea of what the the notion of a collective truth was, rather than just an individual, you know, point of view. New York Times, they didn't get the weapons of mass destruction 
quite right, did they? So well, I did say omissions yeah. and inaccuracies from time to time. But you know, I read I read the Times every day, and I, and I and I think it's important to support the the best of the of the mainstream media. We still need those institutions that do the long form reporting and that have the networks of folks around the world, without a doubt. So, how much do you rely on Wikipedia? I wouldn't say rely on Wikipedia, <laughs> but Wikipedia is the great jumping-off place. If you're if you're if you're looking for uh, information on a subject, you can search, and then you can start at Wikipedia and look at the the links that they have there and go on from that. And you know, Wikipedia has some great articles on 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 all kinds of obscure things that you wouldn't find elsewhere. One of the one of the literacies I talk about in my book is attention, and I talk about mindfulness. I also talk about the, maybe the more scientific name for mindfulness, metacognition. And there's a great article on metacognition in, in Wikipedia, and I, I recommend it to people. How mindful uh, is Do you find people use computers as a means of uh, zoning out, increasing beta waves, of uh, getting into a meditative trance? You know, I, I think many people saw the, that viral video from a mall camera of the young woman walking in a mall looking at her phone falling into the, the fountain in the middle of the mall while she was texting. The Pew Internet and American Life surveys, who do great scientific surveys, have found that one in six Americans have admitted running into something while looking at their phone. So I wouldn't confine it to the computer, there is the kind of the click trance. You're, you're sitting there and you, you click on a link and then you click on another link and, oh, here somebody is sending me a cute cat video. Suddenly, whatever it was you started out to do, you are somewhere else. And there's a great value to that depending on what you need to get done that day. But that's different too than the experience of going into a library and seeing books and browsing and seeing what's next to it or looking up a word in the dictionary and finding related words nearby, uh, it, it feels more random, but it can be more interesting sometimes. Well, you know, I miss the, the smell of libraries and the, and the smell of used bookstores, and I think it's, it's sad that we're, we're losing so much of that. And after all, I did write a, a, a book, but serendipity is not missing online. There are all, I think, you can walk down the, the aisle and, and pull out a book and look at the books next to it, but you can't do walk down an aisle three floors up and, and 16 rows over a second later, which you can on the internet. So I think it's a matter of knowing what you're doing. And do you, do you find an advantage in that speed? I can, I can well, you know, there's an advantage and a disadvantage. As, as a writer, I want to thoroughly research a subject. And so I can, I can find out more in a shorter period of time by orders of magnitude. But then, of course, I've all, uh, the narrow end of the funnel has not become any, any wider. The wide end of the funnel has become much wider. I still have to uh, squeeze out those words, and they've, they've got to come one after another, and you, you start at the beginning and you end at the end. And that's, uh, I think, more difficult because the tools enable us to find out more. What are your tools of choice? Well, search is a, is a, a great tool of choice. I, I use some specialized tools. I, I, I use what's called social bookmarking. One of the things I talk about in the book is how people can participate and collaborate in a way that's useful to them, but also adds up to something useful for others. So we all need to 
bookmark some things, the things that we don't think we can search for later. We want to be able to find them about particular subjects, and we can tag them by making those choices publicly available to people. There are services called Delicious, or another one called Digo, D-I-I-G-O. Then you're creating a public good. When millions of people do this, when you're looking for something on that subject, you can find what other people have found to be valuable as well. So, so, so okay. So you're at the you're at a browser and you're using one of these these programs, and you're looking up, say, uh, Paisley shirts history. Uh, you you mark what some of the pages that you found, and those get posted, and other people find them, and then people when they're looking for Paisley shirts, they come and they find a, a pricey of all the other searches that people have done on that subject. Yes, and more. I, I, and more? Well, I find a page, and I see, oh, there's something about Paisley shirts, and there's a, a passage that I want to particularly remember, so I can uh, select that passage and put some tags. I can put shirts and fashion and, and Paisley and history on that as, as different tags, and later, when I want to come and find it, I can look at what's the combination of Paisley and history, or um, what's, what's the history of Paisley shirts? Other people can do that as well, and, and as a, a teacher, as an instructor, I can tell my journalism students, if you want to figure out how to use Twitter for journalism, here, look at the combination of the things that I've tagged for Twitter and those that I've also tagged for journalism. So it makes it really easy not only for me to collect information, but for me to offer those collections to, to others with just a, a short URL. What time do you wake up in the morning? I get up about 7.30. I, and the first thing you do? Uh, first thing I do is go get the New York Times mm-hmm. out in front of the house. When, when do you check your Twitter feed? Oh, it, I, have to have, I have to have breakfast. I have to read the entire newspaper before I do anything. So if I have a 5 a.m. head for the airport, I get up at 4 a.m. And they deliver it at 3 a.m. So I can... Well, I used to drink coffee. And so I had to have the coffee. I had to have the paper. And then later, about 9 a.m., I would get online. You're very temperate in that regard. There are people, teenagers to adults, who first thing in the morning reach for the device, check to see what's happened. Well, you know, part of what I... Or join in. Part of what I write about in the book is that the world isn't going wild and we're not losing our minds because of this medium. It's because we don't know how to use it very well. And part of it has to do with having some control over your attention. So... It's, you can establish good habits. Bad habits aren't established, you just sort of fall into them. And I think that that's most of the people who use the internet have just sort of fallen into it. And I wrote the book to try to download what I've learned in 30 years about how you can be better at it, but in the process, how you can improve the commons. Because, you know, we can't really police and shouldn't police what people put online. We wouldn't have a web if we did that. But I think if we can increase the number of people who have a clue, then I think that we can increase the the health of the online commons. What is currently the coolest thing you've found on the internet? Or will that vary from hour to hour? (laughs) Well, by whose whose definition? Yours, yours. Something that, I saw this the other day. I couldn't believe it. It was so marvelous. I couldn't believe somebody had imagined this and brought it to fruition. Um, the history of coffee houses. Do you know that practically everything was invented in the coffee house? The, the <laughs> science, democracy, and capitalism. Except in, later it was the pub, I hear, but anyway. Yeah, right. 
Well, you know, pubs, places where people uh, imbibe alcohol go back a very long way. In fact, there's a theory that civilization started because you had to stay in one place in order for the beer to, to <laughs> ferment. But, uh, but coffee was a new drug, and it came along in around the, the 17th century, and these gathering places weren't strictly male. They weren't organized by class. They were organized by interest. So if you were interested in science, you went to a certain pub where you might find Isaac Newton uh, dissecting a dolphin. If you were interested in the shipping trade, you, you went, went to Mr. Lloyd's pub uh, in, in London. And if you were interested in, in capitalism, you went to the Royal Exchange, which later became the Royal Exchange. And the, the fellow who jumped up on the table and said, aux armes citoyennes, let's storm the Bastille. That was... It was coffee house. That was coffee house, yes. Triple espresso, right? Yes. <laughs> People, the, more, the more alcohol you drink, the better you think your ideas are. Um, the more coffee you drink, the, the, the more you can articulate. <laughs> your, your, your word per minute, I think, increases, increases rapidly. So one of the phenomena today is, is, in fact, the, the notion of the coffee house today as a place where you get Wi-Fi, and people go in and they create their little study carols at their laptops, uh, you know, all lined up. It's not a place where a dolphin would be easily dissected nowadays. One, you'd have the animal rights people on you, but two, uh, it's, uh, it's convivial, but it's sort of convivial externally rather than internal to the space usually. Well, it's complicated. You know, I think that, that if you're going to go do that, buy coffee. You know, it's a port the place that, that, that's enabling you to do that. But I also think people are doing that to also to, to, to not just um, have a place to get Wi-Fi, but there's a certain conviviality. If you see the same people there every day, then people get to know each other uh, a little bit. So I have a very mixed feelings about that. I think those people are communicating. They're just communicating with people who aren't there. Right. But are you going to communicate with people who are there? So again, this- are, are you the guy who came up with the phrase virtual community? Yes, I did. I was trying to explain in 1987 that you didn't have to be pathological to use a computer to communicate with other people. And I, I said, well, this is just like a community. Well, you know, that's, it's so amazing things. People can send pictures of their grandchildren via iMessage back and forth across the country. The, you can have communication of one kind in that way. I mean, it's, it's a marvelous thing. Your daughter came of age in the beginning of search. If uh, your daughter were coming of age now, she would clearly grow up into a completely different internet environment where school papers are done, homework is assigned all through the internet. Uh, what? How would you want her to be net smart? I mean, I suppose yes, all the answers in the whole book, but what would you want to be your guiding principle? Would you look over her every day, over her shoulder? Would you teach her how to be wise, uh, skeptical? I, I don't think looking over anybody's shoulder is going to teach them to use good judgment, but I, I definitely sat down with my daughter at the computer and did that search and showed her the Martin Luther King site and showed her some things that, they're, they're not rocket science, it's not even the multiplication tables, it's just that nobody in school is teaching you how to do that. I would, I would start with, as I started in the book, with attention, of just beginning to become aware of where you are putting your attention. The distance between not being aware of it at all and being a little bit mindful is, I think, a tremendous leap. And if everybody in the world just thought once in a while while they're sitting at the internet, why am I paying attention to this? I think that we'd have a better world. And you know, for 
meditative traditions go back thousands of years, neuroscience, there's a, a great book called um, uh, The Mindful Brain, uh, really indicates that if you start paying attention to your attention, you can actually change your brain. You can actually become better at determining whether to click on that cute cat video now or, or finish uh, what you're doing. Let's click on the cute. You'd, you'd <laughs> click on the cute cat video, right? I try not to. I, I really try not to, but it's, it's hard. Uh, uh, it, also... it used to be when I was starting a project, I'd do anything to stop starting work. So you, the house would be incredibly clean because I'd vacuum the whole house before actually sitting oh. down to do any work. But now, of course, you can, you know, metaphorically vac do the vacuuming on the computer, which is... <laughs> Well, um, what, I like the metaphor. I'm doing housework, dear. Let's hurry. Well, you know, I, I take an exception to Nicholas Carr, who wrote a book called The Shallows, in which he said he had to go to a, a cabin in Colorado to escape the distractions of the Internet. And, and I wrote for a, a good 10 years before the Internet came along. And let me tell you that a writer in a room with just a pencil and paper has a world full of distractions. We have the sharpest pencils. We have the cleanest dishes. We have the best weeded gardens. At a certain point in the day, you've got to sit down and, and, and crank out those words. So it comes back to the attentiveness and the mindfulness that it's the base of this. It's clearly an enormous subject. The book is called Net Smart. It's by Howard Rheingold. And you can also meet him online, anywhere, wherever you're listening. He'll be happy to talk with you. And what time do you shut things off at night? Well, you know, I have a routine where towards the end of the day, five or six o'clock, my dogs demand that I walk them. And I walk them in the countryside and I, I turn off my, my audio book when I get to the place where I take them off leash. And I spend some time just surrounded by nature and no technology. And then when I come back, Maybe I'll check my email, but my office is a good 15 yards from my house, and I have to make the decision to go out there. So I pretty much leave it there at night. NetSmart, Howard Reingold, thank you very much for stopping by on West Coast Live. Once again, the man with the most interesting shoes. Beautiful. I have to ask you just about your shoes. He's wearing the most beautiful ensemble of uh, sort of palm tree shirt and shorts and... These shoes have got stars on them, and uh, what is it's a snake, I guess, on a something. Snakes and eyeballs. Yeah. Snakes. It is an eyeball. Uh, you know, if you if you search on how to paint your shoes, you you will find <laughs> a manifesto I wrote about that some years ago. Howard Rheingold, check him out. Search him out. Thank you very much for being on West Coast Live. That's smart. How to thrive online. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.